and welcome to this episode of Ann Arbor AF, a podcast for folks trying to figure out what's going on in Ann Arbor. We discuss current events in local politics and policy, governance, and other civic good times. I'm Jess Lita, and I'm here with my co-host Molly Kleinman. We both use she, her pronouns. We're your co-hosts to help you get informed and get involved. It's your city. Let's jump in. Today, we're talking about the next city council meeting coming up on Monday, March 7th at 7 p.m. We'll be touching on a few interesting agenda items, including American Rescue Plan Act funds or ARPA funds, infrastructure, and a couple of important rezonings and offer some ways for you to get involved. A quick process note, as always, we record this a few days before the council meeting, which means there will likely be some changes to the agenda between now and then. Uh, So Jess, what did you think of this week's agenda? Man... I liked this agenda. This is some real council shit. Uh, It it felt like, (laughs) and what I mean is it feels like a minimum of nonsense. It's not micromanaging staff. It's not weird language. Like this is actual policy direction at a high level that's appropriate for council at various stages of work, you know, very beginning of work, middle of work, end of work. And it just, this feels like, what is it? Right, right seat on the bus. Yes. Ah. I feel like council is sitting on the right seat on the bus. Good job. Council. Awesome. Awesome. Um, cool. So to start with, we actually have some pre-agenda things. There's a couple of really cool memos in this one, uh, starting with the ARPA fund disbursement report. Yep. So the this is a city administrator memo to council summarizing the results of community engagement and staff recommendations regarding the American Rescue Plan funds that Ann Arbor is slated to get, which is approximately $24 million. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about this report. So one of the things that I appreciate is the level of detail that they report back on community feedback. They let you know how they heard from folks, what they heard from folks. There was a survey out there for a while, you know, tell us what you want us to spend money on with a finite list of options, but then inviting further feedback. And so this report actually is really clear about every single piece of feedback that they heard, which is unusual and great. Um, another thing that I appreciate about this report, I mean, we are we already know how I feel about reports. Like <laughs> it's a report, so I love it. But why don't you marry it? <laughs> I can't wait to meet the report that I marry. Like A20 was so amazing. And I said I wouldn't marry it, but I would date it very hard. What's gonna beat A20? I can't wait to see. Um, All right. So another thing that I appreciate about this memo is, so for me, any document that makes recommendations, if it's doing a good job, it is a mix of science and art. So the science is in the quantifiable documentation. This many people said these things and here's how they said it. Like that's relatively straightforward, but it still doesn't show up all the time. So I appreciate when it does. The art is how you manage to like just sketch together both lived experience, basically what we're hearing in community feedback with a professional expertise of staff. And I think that this report does an extremely and unusually good job of marrying community and professional voices. I just really, really like that. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth reading. It's it's not that long. And I thought it was really interesting to see some of the details of what what people were asking for. I just wanted to call out a couple of the specific pieces in this in this memo. So you may recall that there was a big effort to get people to to give dots for unarmed response to say like we want to fund unarmed response and 
Crows really turned people out. There was a ton of community support for this and it's reflected in the memo. And that to me feels like one of the big wins of this process and of this document is the really clear widespread support for a community crisis response program that's not the police, that's not bringing guns into situations where we really, where guns are gonna make things worse. So that was a highlight for me of the report. Uh, a sort of low light for me in, in the results, although I think not actually in the memo itself, is around Vision Zero. So Vision Zero and just tra- you know improving transportation safety scored really, really low. Uh, surpri- I think surprisingly low, although I have a couple of guesses as to why. Uh, one of them is that there really was not, there was not any advocacy for Vision Zero in this. We saw huge efforts to turn people out around on our response. The arts community was like super duper yelly about money for the arts to the extent that it made a difference in the recommendations, even though it was not a large number of people, just I think a very small, loud group of people. Um, But Vision Zero did not have anyone leading that advocacy. And, you know, as chair of the Transportation Commission, part of me is feeling like, well, crap, that like, Maybe there's something more the commission could have done. I don't actually think that's true. I just think there's a real vacuum right now when it comes to transportation advocacy in the city. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, And this, these results really um, drove home for me that we need some real coordinated effort around a lot of these issues that I care a lot about that I know a lot of people care about. One of my theories about why people didn't vote for this is that we've had some really amazing visible projects in the downtown, the new protected bike lanes. And I think most people don't know that those are DDA projects. Those are not city projects. Those are funded by the downtown development authority and different staff, right? Different Different, staff, different leadership a little bit. Yeah. Different Mm -hmm. leadership, different pots of money, and they will never extend beyond the downtown without city spending and city effort that's currently not there. Uh, so I think that's, that's maybe one reason it's like, oh, we're already doing such a good job on this. I don't have to vote for it because we're clearly already prioritizing it. Um, and so that's, I think the other reason why I think maybe people didn't think to vote for it. However, and this is what Jess was getting at with this sort of art and science thing. I think this memo makes a really compelling argument that we should be funding vision zero anyway. And I think it's, I think it's right. We've made very clear At a policy level, we have set city policy that we care about improving transportation safety, specifically for pedestrians and people on bikes. And so even though this particular community engagement did not show a huge amount of support for that, this is already set policy. We have elections that showed support for that. Therefore, we need to invest in it anyway. Uh, So I'm hopeful that that if this gets adopted, we're going to see, I think, some some good some good money going towards Vision Zero. It's like two million dollars, so it's it's not going to cover everything, but it's way more than nothing. It's way more than zero. So those are like my highlight and low light of what's what's in this ARPA report. Speaking of Vision Zero, let's talk about another administrator memo. <laughs> <laughs> So this is one of the later editions, and I was super excited to see it. This is AC3 on the agenda. It's called the Infrastructure Memo, 
we are talking about it because, I mean, come on, infrastructure memo, hello, that's just flirty right there. Um, but I was curious to see what it was going to be about. Um, I love multi-year, multi-stakeholder reports, and this is more like a strategic um adoption maybe or application let's say Mm -hmm. of a lot of the big policy and direction documents that we already have so it's not just all the work everywhere all the time but the extended coordination and cooperation that effective infrastructure work requires I gotta Mm -hmm. say on this report I am particularly fond of the narrative (laughs) yeah so just tell us what tell us what this particular memo is doing So this memo is talking about needing to be ready for when the infrastructure funds of ARPA are released. So not just our municipality funds, the $24 million, but additional funds intended to, uh, what is the platform, build back better, um, and really get at the hard infrastructure of a community, uh, a country, whatever. Uh, So our Interim center City Administrator Milton Dahoney is making the case that we need to be ready, not only with plans, but with co- coordinated commitments for when those infrastructure funds are released. And then he, in this memo, proceeds to make the case for which projects to prioritize, approximately what funds they require to complete, uh, and, and talks a little bit about that. Right. And so I think it's I don't think it's the Build Back Better Act because that one didn't pass. But there's some some amount of infrastructure spending that's been approved or we anticipate will come will come out. But that's true. Um, So that's the act. I was actually referring to Biden. I think that was his platform that he ran on. Right. So, uh, yes, we're both right, which is my favorite (laughs) way to be. (laughs) Yes. Um, Right. So lots of infrastructure money coming and this argument that we need to the city needs to be prepared to fight for that money and spend that money. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I'll, I'll talk about my bit if that's okay. And yeah, then I'm, I want to talk about your bit because I love your bit. So what I like is that this, the infrastructure plan very clearly draws on existing policy, very well documented, very well supported policy directions of the city, including Vision Zero, uh, which we were just talking about with the ARPA fund disbursement. So I love that. What I am missing is the fact that certain documents aren't specifically cited. So A20, our carbon neutrality plan, isn't named in there, even though specific initiatives in A20 are in this infrastructure memo. So they're there, but not specifically called out. I also don't see the moving together plan, even though there are road infrastructure investments specifically, you know, as Molly said, geared towards vision zero um, and towards getting us there. And the other thing that I'm missing, and this is a little bit of an unfair criticism, but I'm going to do it anyway, uh, is that there is no placeholder or mention of the strategic work that's going to become out of an office that we don't have yet, but we're going to soon, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office, DEI, that's already been approved by council. It's already been funded by council. They're working on that hire right now. We know it's going to come. Anytime I don't see equity specifically named and prioritized in a report, I get super itchy. 
it's, this is not exactly a criticism because this memo is the distillation of a lot of existing work that does talk specifically about equity and how to prioritize justice-centered transformative changes and directions for the city. So I get that. This doesn't necessarily need to retread that ground. But if there are decisions, if we've got, if we need to make, you know, some cuts based on priority or timing, what is the framework for making those decisions? That's what I'm missing. So this is just a communication. This is, you know, the city administrator talking to city council. This is not specific actions yet. So we're really early on in this process, but that that's what I'm not seeing. And I wish I was. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes it clear that it's an itemized list, but it's not in order of priority. It's just a bunch of possibilities for, for yep. what could be in there. So what I really liked about this memo was right at the top because city administrator Dahoney is making a very strong argument that Ann Arbor should behave like a fucking city. None of this college town bullshit. We need lobbyists. We need coordination. We need to be paying attention to all of these funding opportunities. And then we need to be making a concerted effort to get as many of them as we can. And I don't think that that is necessarily how the city has oriented itself towards these kinds of pots of money before. We definitely, we apply for grants. I know we do and we get them and we use them, but he's seeing a really big opportunity out there and he wants to make sure we are strategic about how we go after it so that we can do more things and behave like a, like a city, like a big city. Like a big girl city. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I really loved about about this memo was just that my strategic brain and my leadership brain was like, yes, that we have been missing this. This is, yes, I hope they listen to him. Yep, this is fun. And I really liked in the narrative, the kinds of relationships that he was detailing that we needed lobbyists at the federal level. In addition to the state, we, I believe we have a consultant working for us in Lansing, uh, but that's really it and it's unclear uh, anyway, that we've got that, but there's something missing. He also says that the city needs to develop a relationship with an economist. That's the literal phrase. I love it so much. I'm so confused. I don't know what that means, but I'm very excited by the possibilities. We do need a relationship with an economist. Can the city go out with one? Can we do that? <laughs> as long as I don't have to have a relationship with an economist, I'm all good. <laughs> That's fair. Thanks, Milton. Thanks, interim city administrator Dahoney. This was a fun memo to read. Yeah. All right, right. so what else do we got? Now we're getting into the actual agenda, starting with an item on the consent agenda, which is CA9. This is uh, to assign money to design a path under the East Medical Center Drive Bridge. Also known as? That damn bridge. (laughs) I thought we were done with it for a little while, but so what this is, the, we have this contract for design. That was all of this wrangling that has happened so far was about a contract with a consultant to design the bridge. And it turns out that that contract does not include design of a path under the bridge, which was a frequent topic of conversation because there were a lot of folks, especially the Washtenaw uh, Biking and Walking Coalition were pushing really heavily that we have to include this bridge. It will will provide a connection to the border to border trail and give people an off-grade way to get through an intersection that's only going to get worse. Uh, So it turns out design for that path 
there was, it was sort of like sketches were included in the proposal, but it wasn't an actual design. And so we need to pay more to get that design included in the, in the contract. And because of the vagaries of different funds and where money's coming from, they have to pull it from the general fund. And so it needs eight votes. It needs to be approved by council to spend this money. There was a question in the agenda response memo and just a reminder of what that is. So council members can ask questions of staff about agenda items before the meeting and then staff will answer them. And so council member Briggs asked, did the U of M offer to cost share for the design of this path? Uh, I thought it was interesting that she asked if the university offered, not whether we asked them to, but the university did not offer to cost share for the design big surprise. Uh, and so we're going to, this is for us, the city to pay for this design. Uh, once there's a design in place, they probably will talk to the university about cost share on actually building this path under the bridge. So it sounds like we're going to move forward with the path under the bridge. That was an open question. We're a little behind now. And what means we're going to have to pay, like spend more money and spend city money to do it but at least we're doing it, honestly. I don't have that much more to say about it, um, but I guess for those of you who really care about this path, there's gonna be a design, so keep your eye out, and I'm sure you're gonna have opinions about it and uh, get ready to share them when, when that design comes out. So, because originally the, the very early sketches, there was like this wild, like many, many switchbacks at, as the sort of, just to point out that there'd be a path and people flipped out. They were like, those, you can't do that. You're adding like so much distance. And what about people using mobility aids? And it was, but yeah, so it's not gonna be a million switchbacks. I think it's probably gonna be pretty straightforward. Um, but that's that's all this is. I will be interested to see if this gets pulled. I think there's a good chance that it will, but I'm if it doesn't pass, I would be surprised. It'll probably pass. I, I would actually be okay with it coming out from under the consent agenda because you and I saw this on the agenda and you and I, who have been paying fairly close attention and <laughs> fairly, asking lots of questions and, and, and having a lot of opinions, we're confused by this item. So yeah. I think it's legit if council wanted to have a conversation about it or don't and just pass it. But just, you know, yeah. if you are getting questions from constituents or you have questions of your own, like go for it. But I, I imagine <laughs> that this will get approved. Yeah. Yeah. So, yay, there will be a path under the bridge, we think, someday. <laughs> <laughs> and now we move on to the rezoning portion of the agenda. That's right. Rezoning part one. All right. So C1 uh, on, on your agenda, if you're following along, if you're in your hymn books, C1 is a rezoning of the Y lot, known to most people as 350 South 5th from D1 to Molly, I'm very sorry to inform you that this is PUD and not PUD. PUD. Uh, all right. So Molly, what do you know about this? Okay. So the Y lot is not near the Y. It's a parking lot near the downtown library, near the Blake Transit Center, I think. Yes. Yep. Spot on so far. And there used to be an old Y there before my time. And this land was owned by the city and then the city sold it, I think, to have someone do something with it. And then they never did. 
and the city bought it back. And I think there was a lot of like drama around that. But again, I don't know beyond drama and it's still a parking lot. And I think it's on the list of, of sites in this affordable housing plan that we're going to build all this affordable housing with our new millage. That's one of the places we're going to do it. And we have reached the end of what I know. Well, the cool thing is you were right about a hundred percent of everything. Good job. Awesome. <laughs> you're right about the location, right about the drama, and you're right about this as a site for affordable housing. So this specific decision is a rezoning. This is not a site plan approval. This is not a development plan. This is being submitted with what's called concept plan, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. We got to this point, I I will skip the drama portion of this site's history and go both to the way back and the very recent. Um, The very recent is that four years ago in 2018, city council directed the housing commission to evaluate a number of city owned properties for their potential of getting developed as affordable housing communities. The commission considered factors like proximity to transit and services, likelihood of scoring high on competitive finance applications and income diverse areas in assessing the different sites. In the downtown, a few sites were scored pretty highly, uh, fairly attractive uh, for affordable housing development. The first two being the surface parking lot at 4th and Catherine, which is across the street from the mural depicting prominent prominent Black Ann Arbor residents and Catty Corner from the food co-op. So that was the first one. And the second one, uh, there were others, but the like the top two scorers were uh, that one and 350 South 5th, also known as the Y-Lot. It has that name because that's where Ann Arbor's previous YMCA stood before it was demolished in the early 2000s. So just to clarify, I am from Georgia and there's a truism there that we give directions based on where the Walmart used to be. <laughs> this is a little bit what that feels like. <laughs> Right. Like we're still calling, we will continue to call it the Y lot after there's like a big apartment building there. That's right. We'll have thousands of new neighbors and we'll call it the Y lot. And maybe that's okay. (laughs) Um, So the reason that we're talking about it in this particular context is that the housing commission as kind of an extension of that directive to explore affordable housing opportunities is working to get all their ducks in a row in order to be able to put out a request for proposals or an RFP to partner with developers to create a substantial number of affordable housing units on this site. And what it's looking like is there will be two towers, one dedicated to affordable housing and one uh, either all market rate or mixed income. And so that's the plan. One of the things the Housing Commission is doing is creating a concept plan that a developer can use as a basis for a site plan and as a reminder for a process-oriented plan of friends, a site plan is really kind of the trigger for approval of a, spe- excuse me, a specific development. So usually the developer would come with the plan. Right. What's a site plan, specifically right. a site plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we're sort of giving them a leg up. Kind of. So what the Housing Commission is doing is fine tuning the zoning. So it's not that isn't a part of the process that an outside developer would have to manage. Got it. Because so much of the site is going to be so deeply affordable, they are having to do things that are a little bit more ambitious than our current zoning requirements allow. Mm. And so in order to be more ambitious, we can't use the current zoning, which right now is designated as D1. They're rezoning it to PUD. And I'll talk about that more in a second. 
but specifically why the Housing Commission is doing that is that rezoning is a process that can be risky. It's tough to predict how long it's going to take. It is inherently uncertain and therefore expensive. And so the Housing Commission shouldering this part of the process, A, it's a lot less expensive for a city partner to go through this. And B, it makes it much more likely that both affordable and the market rate components of this concept plan will eventually get built. I'm just pausing in case you have like no, I think I think I've got it now. Awesome. Awesome. Good. Okay. So we are seeing this because rezoning is a city council decision. Basically, you know, the person who wants to use land in a particular way, they have to ask permission of council if they want to use it in a way that may be inconsistent with the city's land use plan. There is a risk to PUDs. Um, part of it is that planning by exception invalidates the process of comprehensive land use planning to begin with. Like we do that for a reason. We're trying to manage a host of really complicated factors like affordability, housing, transportation, schools, opportunity access. And so if we start to chip away at that by saying, okay, I know that we have this plan for all of these tens of thousands of parcels, but we're going to create a brand new plan every time a parcel comes up. Like it's just, it's not a very effective way, use of resources. Mm -hmm. The other risk to PUDs is that they are project specific. So when you rezone to a PUD, you are also essentially committing to that specific project plan. If it ends up not going through, see also the lower town cluster tangle of the last 14, 15 years where that development was rezoned to PUD and then the recession hit and they weren't able to build. But because that site was planned, was zoned PUD, it was impossible for another team to come behind them and put together that exact project until they had it rezoned to something more consistent with the city's land use plan. Mm. So that's why PUDs aren't great. Um, Bespoke zoning is not a best practice, but one thing that PUDs can be used for is kind of like if folks have heard about community benefits ordinances in other cities, that is one thing that we can use PUDs for. We can, uh, a developer and a community can use a PUD rezoning, uh, a PUD, I'm sorry, as planned unit development. Yeah. So can use a rezoning like that to ask of more to ask more of the developers. So you know there are certain things within our land use plan, in terms of uh, pilot payment in lieu of taxes, uh, transportation. There was one project recently that was uh, that entailed a, a donate, not a donation, but a pot of money donated. I keep wanting to say donated. It's not. It's like giving over to the city um, a pot of money for the parks department. Mm -hmm. um, and so PUDs are a way for a city to get more value out of a project than just the project itself. So that's what's happening here. As I mentioned, the affordable component of this project is unusually high. It'll be in the neighborhood of 20 or 25%. Typically, a private developer high, high, high end percent would be 12%, much more likely three, four, five, maybe 6% of the units uh, in a development would be able to be deemed as very affordable. 20 to 25% is radical and awesome that we're able to get that here. 
but we need the zoning to be a little bit more flexible uh, with specific elements relating to the percentage of storefront, the height of the street wall, which is how high a building is specifically adjacent to the sidewalk, not necessarily the full building, or on-site parking in order to make the finances pencil out. So basically, this is rezoning because it's going to be so affordable. Speaking so, of parking. Wait, I have a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. This is maybe too too big of a question, but it's currently zone D1, right? Yep. And my understanding is that D1, so that's downtown one, that's, that is of the sort of blanket zoning things that we have. D1 is the one that allows the biggest buildings with the most floors, most housing. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. So what we're saying here is that D1 is not flexible enough for this location because of the, because we're trying to fit more affordable housing into it. Yep. So why wouldn't we make D1 more like what we're doing for this PUD so that more developers can build bigger, more, do you see what I'm getting at? I totally see what you're getting at. And I also hear you, you sneaky climate. I heard, I heard you in your PUD. All right. <laughs> oh, did I do it? I didn't even do it on <laughs> For those who don't know, I learned all of this stuff mostly from like Facebook and I have no planning background and PUD. I just heard it as PUD in my head for a really long time. Googling it never, I could never figure out what it meant, what it stood for. Like finally, once I got to know Jess, there was this day where I was like, I have this confession to make. I don't know what a PUD is. And she laughed because she's like, well, first of all, (laughs) it's a PUD. So anyway, yes, that was my question. Yeah, no. And I think that's a great question. And honestly, not too big. I, I feel like that is one of the questions of this. So I think we should take a look at D1 and D2 and all of our zoning. I I think that we really need to take a look at what we're asking our land use planning to do, because I don't think we're asking it to do enough. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about retooling zoning, which we'll talk about in the next agenda item, that's when you're talking about something that really does require a lot of community engagement, feedback conversations, because we have to do two things. We have to communicate to the community, A, what is land use planning, because it's confusing and weird and very specialized. And B, if we're going to change it, we need to hear from the community. Like, what are our values right now? We're talking about justice in a way that we never have before. Uh, And I'll specifically say as a majority white community, not exclusively, but majority white community, we as a whole are talking about justice and uh, transformative change that would have been unthinkable five or 10 or 20 years ago, the last time that we went through substantial revisions to our land use plan. So we need great feedback from our stakeholders, from people who live here, from people who work here, in addition to our professional staff before we change zoning. In some ways, it's just a paperwork thing, right? Like we edit the UDC, we edit the Unified Development Code, and that's it. But those edits are laden, very, very full of community conversation appropriately. So before we tool, retool D1, which we should, we need to talk a little bit first. Okay. So, right. So we'll get there. But in the meantime, we've got this one site and we need to make things more flexible so we can do this really cool thing. That's right. That's right. And it will continue to be publicly owned. This will continue to be a city owned site. But in preparation for 
the Housing Commission inviting in a developer, a developer partner, both for the affordable housing component and for the market rate component, they're taking care of the rezoning, which is a real administrative pain in the butt. So it's nice that they're kind of taking care of this. Cool. One of the things that I want to point out that I really love is that no on-site parking is being proposed for the affordable component of this project. Like, we can celebrate that. <laughs> But also, this is the least that we could do, mm-hmm. given that it shares a sight line with our transit center and is immediately bordered on the north and south by almost 2,000 parking spaces in the 4th and William parking lot and the library lot, subsurface, surface and subsurface parking lot. So, like, let's maybe not build parking here. It's really expensive and super redundant and probably won't be needed. Definitely won't be needed for the affordable component. Um, and a lot less, if any, will be needed for the market rate component as well. And I can What's hear I can hear people saying, but what about all of these people who need cars to drive to their jobs? Why, sh- why sh- shouldn't we let poor people have cars? And my answer to that is that owning a car is extraordinarily expensive. And we're setting this up so that people won't need a car the way they would have if they had to live on the outskirts of town or out in the townships. And so if they want to have a car, as Jess said, there's a lot of spaces right there, but we're enabling a more affordable life by making it so they don't need that car. Absolutely. And if you talk to folks who work in affordable housing, another thing that they say is that, you know, not everything is a monolith. Like their family, a family with a whole bunch of kids may need a car to be able to get around to activities, schools, multiple jobs, you know, things like that. But not every family configuration is the same. And so enabling smaller units, smaller unit sizes, uh, which this downtown site will probably do, means that people are going to self-select to live here who don't need a car for their everyday lives. So it should be both and. We should be providing housing that does permit access to cars as the existing affordable housing sites like Miller Manor, like Baker Commons, like Larry Terrace, like those do have Mm -hmm. parking spaces. This one won't and that's okay. That's appropriate. Both and. But But there is another kind of parking at this proposed building. So much bike parking, over 110 spaces, at least. Yeah, at least. So that's fun. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Zoning part two. Zoning part two. Let's do it. All right. So this one is C2, which is about doing a rezone to an area at the intersection around the intersection of South State and Eisenhower uh, to a new zoning designation, TC1, which is what we're calling transit oriented zoning. So Jess, what is transit oriented zoning? (laughs) this is zoning that is intended i'm so excited i can't even speak (laughs) it's intended to enable transit focused communities and neighborhoods right now traditional north american and specifically american zoning enables a division of uses so you can only live here and you can only work here and you can only buy here Mixed use where you can basically live on top of your job is really not prioritized in most land use planning zoning designations. It's just not. 
transit-oriented zoning is one of the ways that we can get at that. So we're saying along transit-rich corridors, so areas that the AAATA, the Ann Arbor Area Transportation Authority, already serves, how can we enable a density and a multiplicity of uses that allows that transit use to be even easier? And transit, like we're specifically talking about transit, but that often means uh, folks out of single occupancy vehicles like walking, like bikes. So transit-oriented zoning accomplishes a multitude of things. Awesome. And mm-hmm. so where did where did this thing come from? What, what's the story with TC1? That I, I don't remember the specific genesis of this, but I will say that this is one of the community engagement efforts, one of the very first ones that I have been in Ann Arbor from start to finish for. So I was paying attention to the beginning when it was born and have been listening and paying attention as it goes. And we're really close to the finish line, which is this being implemented into the UDC, the Unified Development Code, finally. And it's interesting because when we're talking about transit-oriented zoning, we should be talking about types of parcels. So which parcels abut corridors that have a high amount of traffic going through it? This does that, but in the community engagement process, there was a lot of hesitation that staff heard on behalf of community about what change this was going to mean. And so instead of implementing this as a parcel type, this is specific to one area of the city. As you mentioned, it's State and Eisenhower, I think you said. Yeah, so we're basically this is test case zoning. We're going to rezone that area over there as TC1. We're going to see how it goes. Cool. So you that's you sort of get get out a little bit this specific rezoning. But so this is going to be the first time we're applying TC1 to an area. We're starting with this particular area. What's what is it about this particular area that has it going first in this process? I imagine this is a little bit of speculation on my part, um, but I'm imagining that. So this is over where the mall is, uh, 777 State? Seven, seven, yeah. The uh, 777 building, right. <laughs> um, which is a tall office building over there. This is really rich in commercial office and parking lot space. So what? much parking lot. So much parking lot, concrete lagoons over there. What it is not rich in is adjacent or contiguous neighborhoods until you get a little bit further away. Mm -hmm. And so I think that people are a little bit fine with doing this area because it is at a physical remove from where most folks live. I mean, there, there are condos back there. There are neighborhoods nearby. But in general, I think because it is so like car juicy over there, (laughs) it's actually there, there's fewer humans literally on the ground to care about the changes over here. So we rezone this area TC1. Does this mean we're going to start seeing like major transformations in this area right away? Like what, what do you, how do, what is, how does this play out after the rezone happens? It's a great question, and I think that that question gets at the heart of both community fears and community hopes. There's a fear that rezoning, any rezoning at all, 
TC1 right now is going to result in immediate drastic change. We're worried that if we change the floor, um, the number of stories permitted in a particular zone, that what we're going to see is buildings raised and new buildings installed, and it will suddenly no longer feel like our city. The reality on the ground is that buildings are sticky and buildings are expensive. And what I mean by sticky is that when you've got one, they're hard to shift. They're hard physically, they're hard to change. Leases are hard to change. Mortgages are hard to change. Ownership is hard to change. And so, like, actually physically changing what's over there is pretty unlikely. What's more likely that we're going to see is the first time development of parking lots and not the redevelopment of buildings, which mm-hmm. is kind of great. Like, that's part of the aspiration of transport, transit oriented zoning is to reduce. Uh, kind of the car saturation of that area. And so giving them fewer places to go or not go like, my God, the area around Briarwood is so, so, so empty. I would love to see the uh, percentage uses of the parking lots over there, because I know uh, folks even here in Ann Arbor have gone around on Black Friday is the day after Thanksgiving. Theoretically, the most intensive shopping time of the year, and there are still substantial vacancies in those parking lots. So even planning for maximum usage, those areas are vastly, vastly underutilized. Although, so mostly, go ahead. Briarwood Mall, there's like this circle in the map that's not encompassed by this rezoning, and that includes Mm -hmm. the mall and the parking, right? Mm -hmm. So that's so it's around Briarwood Mall, but this this rezoning Mm -hmm. is not Mm -hmm. touching the mall. I know there's and that's fine, but there's still a ton of parking over there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So probably what we're going to see is a developer or two developers who have a piece of land that with the new zoning could be more profitable to use it in a a different way. So you can't outside of the downtown district in Ann Arbor, you're not allowed to charge for parking. So anybody who's parking over there is doing it for free. Anybody who's managing a parking lot over there is absolutely doing it a deficit. Mm. So it may be incumbent upon them to turn it into an office building or an office apartment building instead of managing a parking lot. So that's the kind of thing we may see. We may also possibly see the conversion of some smaller buildings, like um, the the typical fast food franchises that you see, you know, McDonald's or Red Robin and things like that. Red Robin's not going anywhere. Those, you know, bottomless French fry baskets, like you're cool. (laughs) But, um, But we may see plots like that that have one use single story buildings get redeveloped there was an example of that along stadium recently where there was a burger king that was recently developed to a very modest two-story building that has i think a verizon or something like that on the first floor and then a handful of offices on the second one that's the kind of change that we're likely to see even still it's going to go pretty slow for a bunch of different reasons. One, again, the stickiness, two, expensive, and two, A, we're emerging from a pandemic where everything is even more expensive than they were before. The supply chain hangups are no joke and the labor challenges are worse. So we are very unlikely to see drastic change along this corridor in a short amount of time. We are likely to see an evolution of more people-centered, transit-rich, like full-use neighborhoods in the longer term. And I mean a half a generation or more. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, the timeline piece is really helpful for me to, to understand. And the, I think a piece, 
you may have said this already, but I just want to hammer it home a little bit more. This idea, the transit orientation piece is the idea that, again, people can live here without a car or car light because there's a bus right there. And increasing the number of people who live on a transit line allow you to run that line with more frequency. And so it's this really wonderful positive feedback loop. If we can get more people living on these corridors, we can get more buses running on these corridors. And then it's even more attractive to live near those buses and it it will all be a wonderful um, evolution, as you said, of that of that area. It's an evolution. I, I love your phrase, positive feedback loop. That's such a much better way for it than the way that I think of it, which is an itsy bitsy spider thing. Like we do a little <laughs> bit of transit. We get a little bit of apartments and we just keep going up one finger at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's TC1. So this, we like this. We want this to happen. It's Yay. a long time coming. Maybe someday soon we'll get it in more than just this one spot. That's, that is my only reservation about this is that only doing transit oriented zone and transit, which is inherently network thinking, only doing it in one spot. I I think the community fear and hope was that doing it one spot would allow us to get information about how it's working from one specific area before rolling it out to the whole city. In actual fact, that's actually probably handicapping us from learning as quickly as we could, because do we have a diversity of price points and owners over there? Do we have do we actually have the ability for multiple people to come in and redevelop over there? It's hard to say, but if we had this ability along Jackson and along Washtenaw and maybe even along Plymouth to be able to look at it over there as well, I, I think we'd get the information that we wanted a lot faster. I think that limiting this to one area of town has actually handicapped us on the learning. And so implementing is going to go even slower. That that's my only complaint. Got it. So if, for example, you wanted to call in and support this rezoning, you might at the same time say, I love it so much. I want to see it all over. That's right. Go ahead and itsy bitsy that spider shit on up. (laughs) Awesome. All right, I've got one more quick agenda item, which is DC1. This is an item about streetlights that might be giving you deja vu. I know it gave Jess deja vu. She was like, didn't we do this already? And I was like, yes, we did this twice already. So originally there was a single sponsor resolution that was going to try and tell DTE to do a bunch of things because DTE is really bad at managing our streetlights, but we have no choice but to work with them. That did not end up going anywhere. This came, this was a new one that came back with multiple sponsors that's much more modest and it's about what's mostly what city staff can be doing to monitor the status of streetlights and uh, try and try and do what we can on our end to reduce the number of outages and pressure DTE to do a better job of maintaining our streetlights. It was postponed the last time it came to council. I, I'm not sure why, but it remains pretty unobjectionable, also doesn't do very much and it's back and that's, that's if you see streetlights and you go like again more with the streetlights, that's that's what that is. I want I somebody to give us an award for all of the streetlight people jokes we haven't been making. We didn't make Are a single one. I'm technically not even making one now. I'm just highlighting that. There, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's it. That's the streetlight thing. Um, and now moving on to potkeeping. Yeah. So we got a piece of listener feedback, and I just wanted to. I really appreciated it. And I wanted to thank that listener and also to let Molly know that she appreciated the bridge episode and specifically what she cared about and really resonated with was how we talked about emphasizing that multiple ways of knowing 
matter, that lived experience is a very valid way of knowing, as is professional experience, as is academic experience. It can be challenging to talk about those at the same level. And she said the Flint metaphor really kind of brought it home for her and and the parallel helped her understand, oh, okay, this wasn't a failure of democracy. It was a failure of listening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so thanks, listener. I'm, I'm not, I can't say... I actually did enjoy making that episode. I was sorry that we had to, but I I liked the conversation. It was uh, a little cleansing. (laughs) Yeah, I was, it was definitely cathartic for me. Um, Yeah. And so then there's one other thing that we want you all to know about, which is that there's currently an online survey that the city is running to gather feedback and experiences about the current uh, pilot configuration of South Main Street. So you may recall this was originally done as part of the Healthy Streets program. It took away one car lane in each direction, added a center turn lane and added bike lanes. The We talked a little bit about the data from this pilot on a previous episode, but it's been incredibly effective at reducing speeding through here and making, which makes it a lot safer for all of the people who have to cross and who are biking through here. So if you've had an experience with this, with South Maine since they've done the reconfiguration, please share your feedback. The survey will close on March 21st at 5 p.m. So you still have some time. It's online at a2gov.org slash South Main Pilot. We'll also link to it in the show notes. So in our episode sheet, we call this section pod keeping, but honestly, like it's just the area of the episode where we talk about stuff that we think is cool. So my thing for this week is an Observer article that I absolutely love. It's called Making Room for Everyone, The Long, Complicated History of Affordable Housing in Ann Arbor. I think this is such a lovely article about dovetailing local efforts against the backdrop of things like federal civil rights legislation and trends. And so we get through this article a much better picture of the evolution of Ann Arbor's attitude towards affordable housing. Heads up, wasn't always so chill. Uh, And it is a lovely portrait of a bunch of folks who live in housing commission and Avalon neighborhoods around the city. So we get to meet some of our neighbors. We get to learn a little history. We get to know ourselves a little bit better. So making room for everyone in this month's Ann Arbor Observer, check it out. It's a good one. And that's it for this episode of Ann Arbor AF. Come check out past episodes and transcripts at our website, annarborafcom Keep the conversation going with fellow Ann Arbor AFers on Twitter at the A2 Council hashtag and Facebook in the Ann Arbor Housing for All group. And hey, if you want to send us a few dollars at ko-fi.com slash Ann Arbor AF to help us with hosting, we always appreciate it. We're your co-hosts, Molly Kleinman and Jess Letaw, and thanks to producer Scott Trudeau. Theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes. You can reach us by email at annarborafpod at gmail.com. Get informed, then get involved. It's your city.